Nolan in the youth room for the youth breakout. We're in our series, The World Waits for a Miracle. And the idea is that the world is a tough place to be. We have war in Ukraine, the Middle East, other places on the earth. We have pandemics and poverty and politics. We have challenges in education and economics. The list goes on and on. And the question is, what will solve the world's ills? And I think at Advent, this is the season of Advent, and at Advent, we are particularly uh, aware of our longings and our yearnings. And so I'd ask you just to get in touch with your longings and your yearnings. Because a lot of what we long and yearn for uh, is the miracle of a whole earth. <laughs> and what we're asking in this series is, will we be able to solve the miracle of a whole earth with human ingenuity? Will we solve that in laboratories and boardrooms and through peace talks? Or does it take something more than that? Well, Advent is a word that means coming. And Christians are waiting and watching and preparing for the coming of Jesus. And normally during Advent, Christians wait and watch for the first coming of Jesus, baby Jesus in the manger. And the reason for that is the proximity of Advent to Christmas. But we're pulling that apart this year and we're, we're actually just going for something more. Because what we understand is that the church has a unique place in the in-between, in the in-between the first and the second coming of Jesus. And so what we're saying in this series is the miracle we wait for is actually the imminent return of Jesus Christ in glory to restore the earth. And so I hope that you feel something as we say that because that's what Christians believe, and that's what we wait and long for. So I'm inviting you into a season of waiting. And Americans don't like to wait, and when we wait, we wait for things like uh, the end of school, or a better job, or when we can lose a few pounds. We're waiting for those things, but we're saying in this series, your vision is way too small. There is something way, way, way more exciting to wait for, and that is the imminent return of Jesus Christ. So I'm trying to teach you in this series, and we're trying to lean in to the posture of holy waiting. The posture of holy waiting. So these first three messages are all from a very short section of Scripture from Mark chapter 1. And a big part of what we're learning is who it is we will discover Christ to be when he returns in glory. And so last week, we began to anticipate the coming of Christ the King. So the earth is a place with chaos and disorder. Sometimes it seems like we're in a world run amok. And so part of what we're longing for is the return and reign of Christ the King. Well, this week, we are waiting for the return of Christ the Judge. In a world where... So many things are wrong that need to be made right. We are longing for the return of the just judge. Now, even as I say that, some of you are thinking, well, that's kind of what's wrong with church. It's all about judgment, and it's the judge. But here's the thing. 
You know, if your brother um, hits you and takes your jelly beans, <laughs> and you go to your parents, and you go to your parents with that, uh, you don't want your parents to say, oh, you know, it's okay over here uh, that you hit your brother and took his jelly beans. No, you want your parents to mete out justice. You want there to be a judge that meets out justice. We know that. We want our parents to be a little reflection of that. But still we struggle when we come to this thing of the judge and judgment day. Someone told me after the sermon last week that he was glad he wasn't a Baptist any longer because he grew up in the Baptist church and he said all the Baptists talk about his judgment. That's not a knock against the Baptist. It's just what he said. And then I had to go, well, we're talking about it next week. <laughs> uh, so here we are. Let's read Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. And I'm going to invite you, you to turn there in your Bibles or in your worship gods. Mark chapter 1. And let's pray as we do that. Father, I feel like we're peering into things too marvelous for us to see and to understand. And we're just sort of settled into our lives, and it's very hard to jog us out of that. And so I, help, I, I pray that by your Spirit, you would uh, spur us into something new and open something up in us, a new longing, a new yearning. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. So John, uh, well Mark starts off and he says the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. And so what Mark is offering is good news. And one of my deepest hopes as a pastor is that you would hear good news today. So if you came here wanting good news, Mark says what he is offering today, he believes is good news. So here we go. We know this reading is an Advent reading because of Mark's emphasis on preparation. Verse 3 says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, then there's that word, prepare the way for the Lord. So twice he uses that word. 
prepare for his coming. And again, remember, Advent is about the coming of Jesus. So Mark must mean the first coming of Jesus, baby Jesus in the manger, right? No, actually Mark doesn't even have a Christmas story. So for the first time, we know whose voice it is calling in the wilderness. The voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Then this, verse 4, and so John the Baptist appeared. So first sighting of John the Baptist, first indication of who it is. So who is John the Baptist? I wonder if you have a feel for John the Baptist or if you think about him. I mean, seems like kind of a, you know, medium person in the Bible, right? Not like super high, not like super low, maybe sort of medium. But I think Mark's trying to elevate John the Baptist. Fleming Rutledge writes, John is held in utmost reverence by all four evangelists. He is the last and greatest of the Hebrew prophets. But far more, and here's the key, and this is Rutledge's emphasis, he is the first person to belong to the arriving age of the kingdom of God. Okay, so are you, are you hearing this? John is the one who sort of looks way out, and his vision is way beyond to the end of the age. And so John has all this in view. And that's why Jesus said, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. So why is that? Again, so John, Fleming Rutledge says, John uh, shows us the essential posture of a Christian disciple. Why is that? Because John shows us the posture of preparing and waiting, not just during Advent, but during all times of the year. And so John is in the posture of holy and eager waiting. Verse 4, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So I want you to see, I, I think of this, it's kind of a fantastic event. All this is happening voluntarily. And so picture, you know, long lines of people down by the Jordan River, and they're down there to do a religious thing, to be baptized by John. And it says they came confessing their sins, and they came for the baptism of repentance. So it's important to know that in the ancient world, baptism was for the purpose of cleansing and washing. John the Baptist was a Jew, and the Jews were familiar with ritual washings. Leviticus chapters 11 to 15 describe those ritual washings in detail. And so the church father Tertullian wrote this, the Jew washes himself every day because every day he is defiled. And William Barclay writes, symbolic washing and purifying was woven into the very fabric of Jewish ritual. So here's the tie to Advent. Advent is about yearning and longing. And so we have this fantastic event of all these people coming. It's like a spiritual awakening. And what they're yearning for is cleansing. And so I wonder if this touches a chord in you. I don't know if you're like me, but there are days, and particularly days around this time of year, when I, like I do something, or I react in a certain way, or I see something in my own heart, and I go, ah, you know, how long, Lord? When is that going to be over? Or sometimes we look, we look around in the world, and we say, how can people be like that? Or how can people do that? And so we look at child prostitution or the killing of innocent lives or people stabbing each other in the back, you know, in business practices. 
But here's the thing, we, run, we realize that, that immorality and impurity run right through our own hearts. So here's the truth about Christmas. Uh, we all long for special moments with family and friends, but let me tell you what I think will happen sometime in your household, because it for sure will happen in mine. At some point during the Christmas, we'll have people together, and we're all longing to be close and have good times together as family, and somebody is going to say something, and you're going to say it, and you're, when you say it, you actually want to reel it back in, even as you say it, because as you say it, you know you shouldn't be saying it. You all know what I'm talking about? You say something, and you shouldn't say it, but you say it, and it's like a dig, or it's a criticism, and all of a sudden, the whole thing goes sideways. Well, that's only one little small example, but what is that? We live in a world that's still longing for wholeness in the human community, even in our own families, or especially in our own families. And so sometimes it can just get discouraging, and we have regrets, and we're the ones looking for yearning and cleansing. We're longing for moral and spiritual transformation. So Fleming Rutledge reminds us that Advent begins in the dark. So Advent is, uh, you can see up on the cross, Advent begins in the dark. And there's this deep color of blue here. And it's the color of the dark night. And it's the color of the dark night because literally the days are closing in on us, right? The days are getting darker and darker until December 21st, which is literally the shortest day of the year. If you go in the Northern Hemisphere, you have days that are almost altogether dark, 24 hours a day, way up north. And so this is Advent. It's the growing awareness of darkness in our world and in our own hearts. And so um, Fleming Rutledge well, let's say, Tish Harrison Warren writes this, Advent bids us to pause and look with complete honesty at the darkness. Advent invites us to name what is dark in the world and in our own lives. To practice Advent is to lean into the cosmic ache, our deep wordless desire for things to be made right. We dwell in a world shrouded in sin, darkness, violence, and oppression. Christians must be honest about the whole of life. In Advent, we take time to examine what is hidden, the sea, the season, this season asks us to come clean about those things done in the darkness. So many of the destructive things in our lives and in the world are shrouded in secrecy and shame, from human trafficking to porn addiction, from sweatshops to whispered gossip, from physical abuse to unacknowledged alcoholism, from corruption of power to quiet despair. So Rutledge, Fleming Rutledge, I've been quoting, and she says that Advent is more like Lent than anything else. So Lent is a time for self-examination and confession, and Advent is more like Lent. And so uh, Harrison Warren calls Advent a little Lent. So the color of Lent is purple, and sometimes you'll see purple drapes up here instead of blue drapes. Well, the reason is that Advent is much like Lent. It's a period of self-examination confession. 
So people in John the Baptist's day were longing for cleansing, and where did John the Baptist say that that cleansing could be found? So they're all rushing down to the riverbanks. They're all rushing down to be cleansed by John's baptism. But John says this in verse 7, and this was John's message, after me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So what is John doing? He's taking a posture of humility. He's emphasizing the contrast. The only one that would strap your sandals would be a slave. And John is saying, I'm not even worthy to be the slave of the one who is coming. So who is it that John is pointing to? Well, what we're going to find is that John is predicting the coming the powerful one. What is it about him that is powerful? John is predicting the powerful one is the coming of Christ the judge. He is the one able to bring a moral, a pure, a transformed earth. So let me try to explain. So hang with me here. In verse 2, Mark identifies himself, and we talked about this last week as quoting Isaiah, um, but scholars have long recognized that Mark's quotation is a combination of quotations from Isaiah, but also Malachi. Now, we're going to read some stuff now, and I told my wife Lisa when we read these passages, I was going to like put on a crash helmet, um, because some of these passages uh, are really difficult, and she said, don't do that. <laughs> and so you all get saved by a lot of things that my good wife tells me not to do, my good ideas. But I don't know that I was really going to do that. But here we go. Um, let's look at Malachi chapter 3 again. You heard Janine read a portion of this. But verse 1 says, I will send my messenger to you. So we're way back in the Old Testament. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. So here it is. This is Mark chapter 1 verse 2, straight out. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. So this is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The temple here is the whole earth. In the end times, the whole earth will be the Lord's temple. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? It's a rhetorical question. The implication is no one can endure that day. And then here it is. Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. So Malachi is pointing to the powerful one who can provide the cleansing that the world and our own hearts need. And so Malachi is forecasting Judgment Day. And you heard Janine read about the sorcerers and adulterers and liars and oppressors. And we know that there will come a day when there will need to be a mass cleansing of the whole earth. All the sin and evil, all the poor choices, all the wrong motives will be held, brought to account. So then it gets worse. So buckle up. Uh, Malachi 4. Surely the day is coming. What will this day be like? Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will, be set, will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. So some of you would go, well, this is what's wrong like with the Old Testament. This is why some people say, well, I don't believe in the God of the Old Testament because that's a God of wrath and judgment. I only believe in the God of the New Testament because he's a God of love. And so people say that, but we don't believe that here at this church. So we're, we have to take these things in 
and we ask, you know, what is happening here? So sometimes people will say, uh, you'll hear people say in church, well, God accepts us just as we are. God accepts us just as we are. And we want to teach our children, I think, because we fear for their self-esteem, that God accepts you just as you are with all your current desires and all the ways you express those desires. But we learn in a text like this that that's way too simplistic. The message of Malachi, no, is that our sin is profound. We weren't born into goodness, we were born into sin, and all sin will need cleansing. So Malachi is saying there will come a day when Christ the judge returns to the earth. And who will prepare God's people for that day? Let's just finish this out. Verse 5, look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. So this is all background from Mark chapter 1. And Mark quotes a portion of Malachi 3, but it's all background for Mark chapter 1 and for John the Baptist. How is that? Malachi is saying it's the prophet Elijah that will forecast and announce and prepare you for the coming of Christ the judge. And Mark wants you to know that John the Baptist is the new Elijah. So stay with me here again. In 2 Kings it says... He had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. The king said, that was, who was it? Elijah, the Tishbite. Now, who did Mark, how did Mark describe John the Baptist? John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. You see the parallelism. So Mark is being very self-conscious about this. So Rutledge writes, John is the promised reappearance of Elijah, the one who would arrive at the end time to usher in the day of the Lord. And so we say to ourselves, well, yeah, but who would want it? This terrible, awful day of the Lord, all the judgment. So one more time, back to Malachi 4. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. Not a root or branch will be left to them. That's just how profound sin is. But what is the very next verse? Malachi 4.2. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. So what is happening here? Even Malachi, the prophet of doom and gloom, the prophet of doomsday, he's saying there's something else to know. So Malachi compares the rising sun to a huge bird whose wings begin to reach out across the earth like the rays of the rising sun. And the image here is that the bird will provide a place of safety and flourishing and nurture. It's a sign of God's grace and mercy. The point is that whoever is within the reach of the sun's rays, they will enjoy healing. And Alan Ross says it's a picture of the new creation given here in Malachi. So back to Mark, uh, verse 8. Mark says, I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Why does that matter? Then Mark gives an account of Jesus' own baptism in in the Jordan River. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So what we learn about the word there, torn open, is the English doesn't really do it justice. It's a strong word about the cataclysmic demonstration of God's power. 
like the dividing of the Red Sea. The only other time in Mark that this underlying word is used was when the centurion confesses that surely this was the Son of God and the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. So what's happening here? So we start with John the Baptist who's forecasting the coming of the judge. But now John sort of pan, or Mark sort of pans the camera back close in to the coming of the Messiah who will heal the world of its sin. So we've talked some in this series. Um, we've got a cradle down here. And the first coming of Jesus, he came as the Messiah. And so that's Christmas. That's the cradle. And in the shadow of the cradle is the cross because the Messiah came to die. He was born to die to atone for our sin. And what we're saying in this series is yet the backdrop of the cross is the clouds on which our Lord will return. So, John, so Mark has all of it in view and John the Baptist really has all of it in view. And so here's what he's doing. I think John the Baptist wants you to see uh, that God does not turn a blind eye to sin because he is holy, but he does not leave us in peril on judgment day because of his love. So the father's love is given to the son. And one day later, John the Baptist will say, behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And what he means is that in love, God the Father sends the Son. In love, the Son obeys all the way to the cross. And now he offers himself to you and me in love so that we might receive God's grace and mercy. So here's the thing you find out in the Bible. Redemption and judgment always go together. I want you to take this in. Redemption and judgment always go together. So there's judgment, but always redemption is close on the heels. There's the judgment of the launderer's soap in Malachi, but then there's the redemption of those who believe in his name and go like calves frolicking in the field. It's the same way as saying judgment doesn't always mean condemnation. So John says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What baptism is, is this powerful identification. So John is saying, you can powerfully identify, not only with Christ, the coming judge, you can anticipate him, but you can powerfully identify with Christ, the Messiah, who died, who stood in our place, who took the burning wrath our sins deserved into his own body. So we, like calves, could frolic in the new creation, in the pure and just world, after Christ the judge has returned. So Romans 6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Do you see it? Redemption and judgment go together. And so I just have to ask you, we're anticipating the return of Christ. And I want you to let your imaginations soar and expand. And I want to let you to let your hopes rise. Because the return of Christ is imminent. It's real. 
the reason that we know Christ will return is that he came the first time. And nobody expected it when he came the first time. But the consistent message is, church, we want to be ready. And so one of the ways to be ready is to receive Jesus the Messiah. We receive his atoning work for sin through faith. And John's message is that when we're baptized, we're identified with him. We are united to Christ. We are safe in Christ's provision and his care. So people will say, um, I'm not going to push my beliefs on somebody else. I'm not going to tell other people what to believe. But why was Jesus so ardent about witnessing for the church? Well, it's a similar question. When will Jesus return? Well, Jesus himself said in Matthew, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all the nations will hear it, and then the end will come. Are you with me? So listen, Community West Church, uh, we all wait for a miracle, and we're not waiting for the miracle of human ingenuity that somehow in the corporate boardrooms or in the world of economics or science or politics we'll get the Savior that we need. We're trusting and believing in the imminent return of Jesus Christ in glory to restore the earth. And part of who it is who is coming is Christ the judge who will restore and give us that whole and that pure earth. So this is good news. We don't have to do it. He does it for us. And this is good news. So what we're doing in Advent is we're giving you these little hourglasses. And if you didn't leave with one last week, there will be ushers who will give them to you. And we're suggesting they're the Advent color blue. And we're suggesting that you place them where you do your Bible reading and prayer. And you just let the sand pass through. And it reminds you of your identity as one who is waiting. You are waiting for the Lord's coming. You're waiting expectantly. You're waiting eagerly. Or you're waiting in hope. See, we all get discouraged. But we, above all, church, have reason to wait in hope for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. So again, one of the things that I love is eventually all the sand passes through the little narrow passageway. And that's a sign to us that one day he will come. And the question simply is, we're living in the in-between time. Will we be ready? Let's pray. Spirit of God, um, expand our hearts and minds into this thing of holy waiting. Life is so difficult, and we don't know where to place our hopes. But help us as a church to wait and to wait well, and to wait for the one who is coming, who promises to come in glory and restore all things. Everything sad will become untrue. We long for that. We wait for you, Lord Christ. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to respond. I'm going to invite you to respond.